This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, how confident are Canadians in the overall vaccine rollout in this country? And do people think that they should have a choice in what type of vaccine, which product they get if they do choose to get one? Some of the questions put to people in a new Ipsos poll. And joining me to talk about what else this poll finds is Sean Simpson, the vice president at Ipsos. Sean, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Let's start with confidence. How confident are Canadians in how vaccines are being rolled out across this country? I would say that they are increasingly confident. And we only need to look back to last month when half of Canadians said that they were skeptical uh, that uh, that the country will meet the prime minister's target of having everybody vaccinated who wants to be by the end of end of September. In this month now, it's 64 percent up from 48 percent. That is a a pretty big climb in just a month. So Canadians are becoming more optimistic as they see their friends and family around them becoming vaccinated. Uh, And what about the type of vaccine? Because we we've had more stories now. We've and I know this has happened since this poll was done. uh, But with the extremely rare side effect that we're seeing in AstraZeneca and the pausing of Johnson and Johnson in the States. Mm -hmm. Uh, But before even before these stories, what was the, the response like on people and the different types of vaccine available? Well, 82% of Canadians believe that they should be able to choose which vaccine uh, they receive. And in fact, 64% say that which vaccine they are offered will or could potentially affect whether they get the vaccine. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers. And what we've, what we've been finding um, in our polling um, in over the last six months is asked you that fewer people are hesitant about getting a vaccine. When a vaccine was first introduced, it was close to the half of Canadians who said, you know, I'm I'm a little bit worried about this. I'm going to wait and see and maybe not be first in line to get one. That proportion now has dropped to just 25% of Canadians who are are hesitant. So the vast majority are are on board and and, and they want to get the needle in their arm as soon as they can. And I wonder too, and I think you asked people this as well, looking at what's happening in hospitals as far as in Ontario, we're seeing capacity issues, not so much here in BC, but certainly in other provinces. Does the, the third wave, as it's being called now, play a role in that? Yeah, I, I think it does because we're seeing some movement between just a couple of months ago uh, and um, and today. The idea of uh, mandatory vaccination appears to be uh, gaining steam once again, uh, up to 69%. Uh, it's the second highest it's ever been. It was actually 72% back last summer before dipping uh, during the, uh, the the winter months. And I think you know people are saying, well, look look at what you know the, the struggles that Ontario and Quebec are having. Even though we're getting the vaccine out, uh, things are essentially as bad as they've ever been in terms of ICU hospital admissions. So uh, this really underscores the importance of us uh, all getting vaccinated, uh, you know, if, if, if it's possible. Uh, and even with uh, our provincial health officer here in BC uh, saying that there will be a, a sense of normal, hopefully uh, by the summer, these poll results don't seem to reflect that people share that idea. 
Oh, not at all. Um, Canadians don't necessarily see vaccination or at least getting vaccinated themselves as a sort of panacea. They they believe that it's actually going to take quite some time to return to normalcy. Most people essentially writing off 2021 as they sort of learn to do about 2020. And, and so people are, are now casting their sights maybe on the summer of next year or even beyond before things will really start to feel like they get back to normal. Uh, are you surprised at all by the, the numbers, particularly with the mandatory vaccination and how people seem to be OK with that now? Well, I mean, it's, it stands to reason that, you know, as you get the vaccine and, and you know, you're fine with it, there were no adverse effects, which is the case for the vast majority of people. Uh, you say, well, look, this was this was no big deal. What, what are people so hesitant about? Get them on board. And, and, and this is reflected in the data. We see that older Canadians who are more likely to have been vaccinated are also more likely to uh, support the idea of mandatory vaccinations. They're also more likely to um, support the idea of a vaccine passport, you know, where people need to prove they've been vaccinated in order to, you know, attend an event or, or travel. Younger people, much less likely to have had the vaccine, uh, much less likely to support the idea that it's mandatory. Uh, right, because, I mean, generally speaking, uh, we're, we're, as people, uh, when you tell somebody you have to do something, there, there's no better way usually to, to have somebody <laughs> say they don't want to do it. That's right, particularly young people. You know, they, they want to make up their, their, their own minds. Uh, and, um, and so we're seeing that in, in the data. We're having a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a battle of the generations here where older people are saying, let's go, do your duty and get vaccinated. And some younger people are, are you know, countering with, well, you know, that should be my choice. I shouldn't be required and I shouldn't be excluded from doing the things that I want to do if I make that choice for myself. All right. Interesting findings in this latest poll. Sean, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us. In my pleasure. That is Sean Simpson, Vice President at Ipsos, talking about the latest feelings when it comes to vaccine, the vaccine rollout in this country, and where we stand as far as getting back to some form of normalcy. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, it has been five years since the drug poisoning crisis was declared a public health emergency in this province. And joining me to talk more about this is Phoenix Society CEO, Keir McDonald. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jen. Uh, good morning. You've released a piece on this uh, going through five things that could actually end this crisis in BC. Uh, we won't have time to get to all of them, but what do you think is the most important thing uh, we could be doing to make this stop? Yeah, and some of these really aren't new topics. I mean, the, the biggest thing we are talking about right now is probably having a safer pharmaceutical alternative to this contaminated supply. As you touched on, these are drug poisonings that are killing people and it's the contaminated supply that has been made even worse through the COVID pandemic. And, um, you know, if we want to stem the loss of life, really, that is the most important place to start. Uh, and you say in your piece, too, as well, that it, it is a drug poisoning crisis rather than we often call it an overdose crisis or an opioid crisis. That's correct, because really, if we look at the, the supply right now, it, it's no longer restricted to opioids, which we really did use that language in the first few years. Really across the spectrum, we're seeing a contamination of all supply, whether that's opioids or stimulants. 
when we look at w- what is happening as well and the, and the number of deaths, uh, more than 7,000 people since 2016, uh, if we were to decriminalize, which, which there has been work there uh, with the, the latest being that uh, you could have a three-day supply, although that might look different uh, to different people, uh, is that a good enough start or will that make a difference, do you think, decriminalizing at least a three-day supply? I do. And again, I think it's what, what, what some of the frustration has been is, you know, there are a lot of really great measures being discussed right now, but in, incredibly slow to implement. You know, I know it's a complex problem, but I think that's why we really wanted to propose, you know, a strategy and a comprehensive strategy, because we know it's no single thing that is going to help arrest the slide of, of deaths that we're seeing. And so decriminalisation, you know, 100% is a strategy that, you know, again, gained a lot of traction last summer whether it was through the, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, whether it was the City of Vancouver and most recently in BC. But as we know, that's now sitting with, uh, with the federal government. And so if we rely on that alone um, and, and do nothing else at this stage, you know, sadly, we're not going to see any action for a while. You also talk about the need uh, for supportive housing to have mental health and substance use services. And I think that's what a lot of people have questions about, that it's one thing to treat. Uh, it's uh, one thing to provide a safe supply and to make sure somebody isn't dying when they use whatever it is they're using. But if we don't get to the root of why someone is using, then it's never actually going to stop. Do you think if we did have that access to mental health and substance use services, how much of an impact do you think that would have? I think it would have an incredible impact. And, um, you know, again, the BC government needs to be complemented with with the work they're doing in in the ramp up of availability of supportive housing. But these are hundreds and thousands of units that are coming online for incredibly vulnerable individuals that, that unfortunately aren't getting access to those key supports. We do hear a lot about the terms like wraparound supports, but unfortunately, those services are currently lacking. So, you know, not everyone will will turn to those supports day one, day two, but we know the benefit of having them available in an integrated setting. Um, you know, those services on demand, we hear those kind of terms. It's, I think it's vital that those people be, you know, have access to those services in a residential setting. Uh, you also write about uh, the need for counselling and for psychology and the psychology services and that for that to be covered. Is that something you see that, that people are searching for that and simply not able to access it? Yeah, I think it's twofold. You know, I think one is there are some publicly funded services available that either aren't extensive enough or aren't readily available enough. Um, for many people, you know, they do have to pay privately. There is no MSP coverage for such things. So if we again look at look at the last 12 months in particular and, and really when we look at now two public health emergencies and how they've collided and, and the incredible impacts on mental health, you know, there, there is a real clear connection between, you know, overdose deaths um, and some of the drug poisonings we're seeing and, and mental health, whether that's the anxiety, the depression, um, the underlying trauma we always hear about related to, to people's addiction having access to free services in any setting, I think is an incredibly important part. Uh, are we making any uh, progress on this uh, as far as, uh, and I know the, the comparison is often made that, that we are paying a lot more attention to the pandemic. Uh, and this is, uh, as we mentioned, more than 7,000 people have died. Are we making any progress? I'd like to say we were, um, you know, up until again, the, the COVID pandemic, we had actually seen the first reduction of numbers back in 2019. However, last year, 
really it rebounded with a vengeance and shot up all the way back up to, to 1,700 people. And we're on a record pace still with, with over five British Columbians dying every day. But there, again, I think there's been a lot of wonderful, you know, public health initiatives and government announcements. But, but to your point before about the speed, I think that is the most frustrating thing is just how incredibly long processes these things take when we talk about, you know, the rollout of safe supply or the implementation of drug treatment beds. It's why is it taking six to nine to 12 months to get going with some of these emergency measures? I mean, if you look up the definition of an emergency, you might read something like a serious, unexpected or often dangerous situation requiring immediate action. You know, that urgent intervention, I think that's what we're missing, or at least that's what we're feeling we're missing. All right, uh, Kier, we'll have to leave it there today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, Jill. That is Phoenix Society CEO Kier McDonald talking about April 14th today, marking five years since that drug poisoning crisis was declared a health care or a health emergency in B.C. This is Mornings with Simi. We are finally going to see a federal budget April 19th. Uh, the federal government planning to spend big is will be the first budget we've seen in about two years. And what will it look like with, uh, we know that the finance minister has pledged to do whatever it takes to support Canadians. Well, we are joined now by Shane Onfrachuk, a partner with KPMG. Uh, Shane, thanks so much for joining us today to talk more about this. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. What, what do you think British Columbians should brace for or Canadians should brace for uh, in this first budget in a couple of years? Well, I think it's going to be interesting. Um, I don't think bracing is necessarily what people are going to have to deal with because I, the messaging that we're seeing from the federal government is that this will not be the budget where we will necessarily, necessarily pay for the subsidies that um, we've been um, you know, benefiting from in the last year to year and a half. And instead, I think we're going to see fiscal stimulus that focuses on sort of pro-growth, um, trying, to effect, trying to benefit some of the sectors that have been affected by the pandemic, like tourism and hospitality, and also kind of trying to grow um, issues like infrastructure and things to try and, um, you know, improve the economy or keep the economy strong as we try and get through the pandemic. I suspect we'll see changes in taxation or increased taxation, perhaps in future budget. So not this budget, this one more about kind of getting back on track. I think so. I mean, some of the messaging has been along the lines of this is not the right time to take away from people. Um, And I think also the fact that this will be a pre-election budget would suggest that they may not um, necessarily increase taxation. Maybe in certain uh, small areas like trying to close tax loopholes or perhaps introducing a digital tax. But in terms of some of the other issues that have been discussed, like um, increasing the capital gains inclusion rate or perhaps taxing principal residences, um, I don't think we expect to see that in this budget. And like you said, um, uh, almost a guarantee of that being a pre-election budget. I think so. I mean, and I think also it's, there's a fear that by increasing taxes at this time where you've got sort of a, a vile, volatile and perhaps, um, you know, a little bit unstable economy, we don't know where this is going to go with COVID numbers, that anything you might do to destabilize the economy could potentially backfire if they do it at this time. 
How concerned do you think people should be about a balanced budget or running what will be pretty big deficits? Do you think the public is kind of more forgiving of that right now because of the pandemic? Well, it's an interesting question. Being an accountant, obviously balancing books is something that's kind of ingrained in us. But um, we've done some surveys and certainly the public view is now is not the right time to balance the budget. You know, whether or not the public's right on that, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, But I I mean, I think basic economic theory would suggest at some point we're going to have to pay for all of this stimulus. Um, It just seems like that the majority of people are of the view that now is not quite that time. But obviously, the longer we wait to pay for this and the more stimulus um, that we put into the economy, uh, the more revenue streams the government's going to have to find in the future to help help pay for those costs. And what do you think when you hear things uh, as there have been so many hints about national child care? Uh, there have been promises of this in the past. It's not ever happened. It's an extremely expensive uh, initiative to take on. What is your thought on, on kind of promising things or hinting at things like that uh, in a budget like this? Uh, I mean, my guess is that, and similar to you, that's the sort of things I've heard, is that it is going to go ahead. But when you sort of add up all of the things that are hinted at, like child care, like universal pharmacare, like the UBI, which I believe the Liberal um, Convention voted in favor of as a resolution, these are all incredibly expensive initiatives. Um, so it, it does beg the question of how we're going to pay for that. Um, and, you know, I guess time will tell as to how they, they go down that road. I mean, the the one area where you would think there's the best bang for your buck to pay for that would be perhaps a change to the GST rate or some sort of luxury tax. But uh, whether or not that would be well received, um, y- you know, by by voters, I guess time will tell. All right. Uh, we'll be watching uh, when it is uh, unveiled next week. Uh, and uh, my guess is probably checking back in with you. We'll leave it at that for this morning, though. Shane, thank you so much. You bet. Have a great morning. Thank you. All right. You too. That is Shane Onfrachuk, KPMG partner in tax, uh, talking about what we are going to be seeing when the federal budget, the first one in two years, is released next week. This is Mornings with Simi. Joel Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Uh, As you may have heard, the number of cases reported yesterday of COVID-19 cases in BC, 873. There were two additional deaths in this province. What we know about the active cases right now uh, with the variants, uh, there are 5,221 active cases, or sorry, uh, uh, the BC cases. Uh, 258 active cases have been determined to be variants of concern. So we're talking about the B117 variant and the P1 variant. Joining us to talk more about this is Jason Kindrachek, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Jason Kindrachek, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. How concerned should we be about the number of cases that involve the variants? Yeah, I think that, you know, generally the, you know, the, uh, the infectious disease community has been concerned about this since December. Um, you can see it in, in the posts that, that they're making. You can hear it in the voices of, of the people that are being interviewed and the people certainly that are on the front lines. Uh, we need to be concerned. This is, you know, it is, uh, you know, in some ways a pandemic within a pandemic and, and the variants have certainly changed, uh, I think, our perspective on, uh, on how to deal with this situation and what's going on. 
Uh, is How important is testing then to make sure we know exactly how many cases we're dealing with are variants? Yeah, it's, it's extremely important, right? And I think the, the issue that we're running up against right now is when you look at the transmissibility of the variants of concern, and I think of particular B117, they're they're moving drastically faster than what the the prior circulating strains were. So the problem is if you don't get that early identification, the ability to then kind of make that up a a few days later or or a week later through contact tracing, you're just not going to have that same option. Uh, And obviously, we're we're seeing an increase in, uh, you know, people ending up in the hospital. We're seeing that skewing again of uh, the age groups that are showing up there. So all this comes down to trying to identify those cases as quickly as possible. Uh, does it get to a point, though, like you said, about contract, uh, contact uh, tracing and, and trying to get a handle on that? It, it, does it change how we respond to the virus? Because then there's also the school of thought that if we just assume we're dealing with variants yeah. and, and treat it that way. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is, right? And I think the, you know, the contrast is between, you know, I'm, I'm in Saskatoon right now, but I'm normally in Winnipeg. When, when you look between the two provinces, Manitoba, variants are starting to pick up, but they're not quite hitting that exponential phase yet. You know, Southern Saskatchewan, Regina, they, they took off and, and we're at a point in the province here where you just assume that the majority of what you're seeing are variants of concern. So if you are early enough in this, you, your contact tracing can hopefully help you keep a lid on it. If you're past that point, then yeah, it becomes you know a, a little bit of, of a fool's errand to try and and figure out where all those cases are coming from. You just assume that that they are likely variants. And this is how viruses work, and it's not a surprise to anybody, I don't think, that we're dealing with variants of this virus. But what's to say there won't be more, or it could become another strain that's perhaps even more infectious? Yeah, certainly. You know, listen, I, I live in that world every day, right? Of kind of of kind of the doom and gloom of what's coming next down the pike. Um, I think for us, when we think about the variants of concern, we, we have to appreciate that these were events that we think largely were likely related to people that were immunocompromised that probably carry the infections for a long period of time. So there, in that case, these would be very rare events for this emergence. And, and I think we've seen that with all of the additional sequencing that's going on. Yes, we're picking up more variants, but true variants of concern have been fairly limited. So the, the potential is there, but if we can get, really, if we can get people vaccinated and we get transmission down, um, that will actually be the biggest benefit for us. And, and I think we still have that ability to get through this um, feasibly within, you know, within the, the rest of the year. And does it work the same then if somebody is concerned about this? Uh, if you're, uh, we know that uh, when you're vaccinated, you can still uh, get the virus uh, or have the virus. But does it work with the variants of concern as well that uh, you're pretty well guaranteed that it's not uh, going to be as bad or you'll have a milder version? So far, the data is really, really good, right? So when we look at the UK, uh, you know, they've been using Pfizer and, and AstraZeneca predominantly in their vaccination programs. They had a really bad run with B117 late in 20, uh, 2020 and early 2021, and they've been able to get transmission down substantially. So what we're seeing right now with, with those vaccines is the likelihood is that it not only does it protect from severe disease for this particular variant, but also it looks like there is some data suggesting that we see decreased uh, infectivity. So all of this goes back to this idea that the vaccines are are working amazingly well. We've got to get people vaccinated, and and we certainly need to try and and do our due diligence uh, to also do our part from an infection prevention control standpoint.
Uh, and we've been hearing that all along uh, as well. Uh, what you just mentioned to or alluded to that it's not one it's not one thing that we're doing. It's all of the all of the things together. Yeah, and that's the the problem with all this, right? Is that I think we we got into this mindset that the vaccines were going to be the silver bullet because of all the positive data that we were seeing from them. But the message has to be clear that it's a combination approach, and that's that's the unfortunate reality with infectious diseases that we we don't have just a magic cure. Uh, to, to get through this. So, yes, we, we still have to worry about distancing and masking and, and certainly hand washing as well. Um, but we also have the added benefit now with, with vaccination that will, you know, will hopefully carry us over the finish line. Uh, there was uh, some polling done. Uh, we talked about this earlier on the show uh, about how people are feeling about the rollout of vaccine in Canada. One of the numbers that's kind of gone up is people wanting to choose or saying that they should be able to choose which vaccine they get. What are your thoughts on that, that people seem to have formed opinions uh, based on perhaps results and news stories and, and people think that they, the, they should, have, should be able to choose what vaccine they get? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I think we kind of understood we were potentially going to be in this position because of the fact that, again, the the system has been working really, really well. The transparency on any potential adverse events has been reported publicly basically as soon as the events are seen. So that, that has worked very, very well and hopefully has built up confidence. But at the same time, it also has... I think created this this consternation of well, which vaccine is actually the vaccine I want? And I think we have to think about the rarity of events and and certainly what's associated with all this. To me, um, I, I I instill the mindset for myself that listen, the first vaccine they offer me, I will jump at. And certainly, my family is in the same uh, boat as that. Um, people have to make informed decisions based on what their their underlying health uh, concerns are and whether they fall within certain age groups. But I would implore people again. Get the first vaccine you can because they all are working very, very well at getting us through this as quickly as possible. Uh, I think Denmark this morning, uh, this morning or within the last day, they've actually suspended their use of the AstraZeneca, which uh, might uh, cause more people to, to think twice about that one. Uh, how important is it to get that message across, though, that yes, there have been some cases uh, of blood clots, uh, as, uh, that uh, complication, but it is extremely rare. Yeah, it, it's critically important for us, right? And I think also to to appreciate where the public is coming from when they hear this and why those concerns are uh, are being raised. We certainly don't want to be dismissive, um, so we want to provide you know some cogent messaging uh, regarding that. And and certainly, again, uh, I look at the real world data and and what has been done in the UK with with the the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's it's been phenomenal. It is a great vaccine in the people that uh, that that have been able to take it. So I, I think hopefully we will get through this. But uh, yeah, it's we're we're in a tough boat right now. All right, uh, Jason Kindercheck, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for your time and for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jill. That's Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, BC's Green Party leader is calling on the government to be more transparent when it comes to releasing information about COVID-19. Sonia Furstino releasing a Twitter video calling on Health Minister Adrian Dix to be more transparent, again, with that information. And Sonia Furstino is on the line with us now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, you released this video, also put questions to the health minister. What specifically would you like to see as far as information release? Well, uh, 
no, it's a great comparison to look at Ontario right now. So throughout the pandemic, Ontario has released sort of much more detailed data around where outbreaks were happening, which neighborhoods, and, and they've tracked that data. They've also done some um, disaggregated data around how the pandemic is impacting racialized communities. And now how that is informing Ontario government's decision-making is that once they started rolling out the vaccines, they also released data about the postal codes of vaccine uptick. So where which postal codes had the, the highest levels of vaccinations and which had the lowest. And they were able to see that the, the neighborhoods with the highest rates of COVID were actually having the lowest rates of vaccinations. And that changed their vaccine rollout. They went to the communities that have been hardest hit by COVID. They've put vaccine rollout kind of priority into those communities. And so that's an example of how data can inform decision-making in, in COVID-19 and in many other ways. We don't have that kind of level. We might have that data, but we don't have that level of transparency. And so the, the reason that we keep asking government for this is, is one, the transparency, but two, it actually helps uh, for people to understand better what the decisions being made by government are. Uh, it gives people the capacity to do a better risk assessment of their own activities uh, and, and understand, you know, sort of more accurately what's happening with the pandemic. And, and three, it, it provides that sense of, of building and, and maintaining trust. So if we can really understand, okay, this is what's informing the decisions. Now I understand I can, I can trust that they're making these decisions based on this. So it's a whole kind of collection of outcomes, but really it, it comes down to that relationship between government and the public in a health emergency. And it says to the public, we think you have a right to, to know and understand about the decisions we're making. Uh, there's been some reluctance uh, to do that. I know even early on in the pandemic, questions like that were asked and the concern that it could uh, pit people against certain neighbourhoods or perhaps uh, uh, it would appear to be shaming certain neighbourhoods. Do you think there is a concern there? Well, I think what's interesting, um, Jean-Paul Soucy, who's a, he's a PhD candidate in epidemiology in Ontario, and he's running this Canadian Open Data Open Data for COVID um, organization, and he said, "What's interesting is is that there's, there is that worry, but what it's actually done in uh, Ontario is it has informed discussions and uh, informed kind of longer term policy and decision making about how to address underlying inequalities that resulted in the the you know the higher rates of COVID in some neighborhoods than others, poverty." Um, crowded housing, people have to, having to work at several jobs. These are factors that contribute to higher rates of infection. We should be, and I, I think that it's essential in the kind of um, aftermath of this pandemic, look at these fundamental inequalities and say, how are we going to resolve those now? And that data would actually help to address that. And in the case of Ontario, again, it's actually resulted in government action, putting the vaccines in the neighborhoods where it's needed most, getting them to the people who need them most, which is, is uh, you know, the right approach in a health emergency.
what about the issue, and, and I've seen this question raised as well, when we do get the briefings uh, and we find out, uh, we, we get the numbers of infections, uh, we get to the numbers of how many people have passed away uh, from COVID-related uh, illness. Uh, do you think we need more information there now, especially that we, we seem to have long-term care uh, more under control? Do we need ages? Do we need more information without breaching privacy, but of, yeah. of who we're losing? Yeah, I think that 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 is important. Um, And, you know, again, to have an accurate picture of of how COVID-19 is playing out in our province, uh, again, to both to inform decision making. I think if if people uh, the more people can understand the the reality of of COVID-19, the the more they're going to be able to make informed decisions about their own actions, saying to people, you know, do this or don't do that, but without that kind of information, that that data, that evidence to back up why that's being asked of people, as we can see right now, makes it harder and harder over this long, sustained period of time to ask people to to make these decisions in their lives. Uh, what kind of a response uh, have you gotten so far uh, to your questions and your request for more transparency? Yeah, we've been asking... Uh, these kinds of questions for for quite a while, and the responses aren't aren't particularly satisfying. Um, but we'll keep asking. Another another important one, and and I had a constituent reach out about this is, and we've been asking about it is data on on people who have long COVID. So again, in other countries, in in parts of the United States, there's been pretty good tracking of people who have these symptoms that that remain after. Uh, the initial inf- infection of COVID is, is over. And these can go on for months. Uh, for some people, they've been going on for over a year. People who got COVID very early on last year uh, who are still struggling with long-term symptoms. It's essential, again, to track that, to understand it, to recognize what kind of policies and, and uh, initiatives do we have to put in place to Um, to ensure that these people have support, but also understand what impacts this could have to our healthcare system, to our economy. So we're going to keep asking uh, questions about data. I think it's really important. And again, not just for the moment we're in, which is essential, but to inform policymaking and decision-making as we move forward, it's essential that it's informed by data and evidence. All right. Sonia, first to know, we'll leave that. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. My pleasure. That is Sonia, first to know, BC Green Party leader. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a new major all-season mountain resort equipped with two gondolas. It would be more than 11,000 acres of space is being proposed for the Chilliwack area, currently called the Bridal Vale Mountain Resort. It is being led by a couple of BC residents, and one of them is with us now to tell us a bit more about the project. Robert Wilson is one of those behind the proposal. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Good morning. Uh, Good morning to you. Uh, This uh, sounds like a pretty big endeavor. How did this all come about? Well, it came about years ago. Uh, uh, My partner, uh, Norm Gockel, um, was uh, in the area, and there are paragliders that came down, and he talked to them about, oh, what's it like up there? And they said, oh, there's a tremendous amount of snow up there. And so that led him to look at the opportunity of, de- of developing out what we're now proposing, which is the, this all-season destination ski resort. 
Um, we're in our preliminary stages. Uh, one of our next steps is to work within the First Nations to engage them and uh, get them in consultation, uh, explain what our ideas are. Uh, any project like this or any development like this obviously would need First Nations buy-in and support. Have you had any conversations or do you know if you have that? Yeah, we, we have an advisor for uh, with us on Indigenous Affairs and he has been reaching out to the First Nations. Uh, we have a number of First Nations now that have asked for uh, consultation with us and uh, that's our next step is we, we respectfully want to engage with First Nations to explain to them what the opportunity is uh, and show that we have the ability to develop out something quite remarkable. Uh, it sounds like a pretty amazing project uh, with a pretty big price tag as well. How do you find the funding or, or what is your plan to find the funding and how much would this cost? Well, it, it's early in the stages, but here's what's interesting about projects of this scale. Once people understand what the project is and how it can benefit the province and generate revenues, then actually the funding finds us. We have very strong local uh, businesses supporting us, so we have uh, a strong financing right now. Um, but as we go to the next step and we engage with First Nations, uh, we believe that the financial marketplace will come to us. That's not going to them. Uh, and what about the environment? When we're talking about this area, the upper Fraser Valley uh, on those highlands, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with with the year-round activities, uh, snowing, uh, the snowfall, uh, so there would be skiing, snowboarding, and then other summer activities as well. Uh, two gondolas uh, accessing the resort. Uh, how do you uh, how do you anticipate uh, the environmental aspect of this? And uh, undoubtedly, there will be people who are opposed to developing this area. Yeah. Obviously, with, as, as you mentioned, with, uh, with a project of this size, we have to respect the environment. And uh, our goal is to develop to the highest environmental and sustainable standards. Um, but to do that, we want to uh, work within the stewardship of, of First Nations. Um, it's their lands, and this is a phased development. So as we go, we'll respect the environment, and uh, we'll respect uh, First Nations stewardship of the environment. Uh, at this point, it's an expression of interest that's been filed uh, with a, a branch of the Forest Lands and Natural Resources uh, Ministry. Uh, what kind of a timeline are you thinking or are you hoping to get any kind of feedback or any kind of response? I, I think we should be able to start construction in about three or four minutes. It, it might be a little longer. Three or four um, minutes? <laughs> it might be a little longer than that. <laughs> no, it, it, it's a long process. It's an involved process. And uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're, the, we're the first step. The first step is the expression of interest. Our next step is a consultation with First Nations within the business community, uh, within the local governments. Um, and that's our next step as part of it. Uh, with acceptance of the idea and the process, then we move to the master planning. And so uh, this is a process that's going to take a few years for sure. Uh, so I was maybe ambitious when I said three or four minutes. <laughs> Always good to be ready, uh, ready to go given the green light. <laughs> uh, there have been projects, though, in the past in this province, uh, the Jumbo Resort, others that have had very, uh, very rocky paths, to say the least. Uh, uh, you must be anticipating uh, bumps in the road. What is your plan for that? Well, yes, I mean, but, but each of these projects is different. And uh, one of the advantages that we have is, I think, the, the very strong local community uh, that's behind this project. So what you see is uh, 
an area where it's underserved. So we don't have a large anchor for tourism in the far end of the Fraser Valley. And this project provides that anchor for us and the growth for not only our project, but for the whole community. Uh, What would the access be like uh, to this? So if we're talking about uh, Highway 1 in that area, anybody that drives that uh, pre-pandemic especially would know uh, that uh, could be a bottleneck at any time of day for any number of reasons. So what about the increased traffic that this would bring? It's going to bring increased traffic, but uh, we're going to be engineering uh, new processes of moving with those traffic as well. So, you know, this is a project that's going to take multiple years um, to to bring to fruition. But at the same time, we'll be uh, working with new ideas of transportation flows. We'll work with the the best people in the industry to assist us in, in that process. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing updates on this and seeing where things go for sure. Robert, thanks for joining us to talk more about this. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, So I was a bit ambitious with the three or four minutes, but uh, we'll get there for sure. All right. That is Robert Wilson, one of the residents leading the proposal. Again, it's been at this point filed as an expression of interest at the Bridal Veil Mountain Resort in the upper Fraser Valley.